Terry sent me a text message, I don't know, two or three months ago when she was planning her time away with her family, and she asked if I would preach this Sunday. And I sent her a text message back, and I said, that depends on what the subject matter is. And it's a joke that she and I have had for many years, because five or six years ago, it seems now, Terry sent me a message and asked if I could cover for her one Sunday, and I checked my calendar, and I said yes. And it was only as the day drew closer that I sent her a follow-up message and said, is there a signed topic for the day? And she said, yes. We're in the middle of a sermon series on difficult subjects, and she coincidentally assigned to me the most difficult, politically toxic, socially divisive topic that the church could possibly talk about, and then she went on vacation and left me here to manage. So now I ask, before I even check my calendar, what the sermon series is. And she told me it's an Old Testament story. Pick whichever one you want. And you know, the Bible is full of wonderful Old Testament stories. People get swallowed by whales and spit back out again, and walls come crumbling down, and Noah builds the ark. And I think she expected one of those stories, but what I chose instead was the story of King Solomon getting old, which seems odd, I will admit. But I have a birthday this year, one of those big birthdays with a zero in it that makes you ponder and become reflective. And I thought, you know, do we really necessarily get wiser as we get older? Are older and wiser really necessarily joined together? King Solomon does live a long life. And he's known as one of the wisest of all of our biblical characters. He's famous for his wisdom, both in the Christian tradition and the Jewish tradition and the Muslim tradition. He is King David's wealthy and wise son. He's born after perhaps one of the most X-rated Old Testament stories we could tell. King David, you might recall, had an affair with Bathsheba, then sent her husband off into the battle to get her killed, and then becomes, she becomes pregnant. They lose the child because God is displeased, but they go on to marry, and they go on to have children, and Solomon is one of those children. He's probably 17th of about 19 children that Solomon had, which means he never should have been king. He was too young, he was too far down in the order, but because of some political maneuverings that we would find unsavory today, behind the scenes, he ends up being king. And early, early on, he's only 20 years old, as Patty said, when he becomes king, but he goes on to rule over perhaps the most prosperous time in Israel's history. He not only built the temple that we read about in the Old Testament, he built some of the most famous cities, military posts, ports of commerce, that were there in the ancient Near East. He's mentioned specifically in the genealogy of Jesus Matthew gives us, and when Jesus himself is trying to explain how beautiful the lilies of the valley are clothed in his Sermon on the Mount, he says, remember this, they're clothed, not even Solomon's glory can match them. His glory was legendary, but it was his wisdom that he was really known for, and it's his wisdom that intrigues me. In the passage that Marvin read, we hear Solomon as a young king ask for God's wisdom. And I want you to imagine for a moment what would happen if God appeared to you and said, ask for anything you want, I will give you the desires of your heart. How many of us truthfully wouldn't just ask for more cookies? <laughs> wouldn't ask for the shiny gold thing that the guy next to us got? Wouldn't ask for longer life, more riches, more power? But Solomon classically asks for wealth. No, he doesn't. He asks for wisdom. He asks for wisdom, and God granted it to him. The story picks up where Marvin left off and says this. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. 
Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the people of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone else, and his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. He spoke about plant life, from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of walls. He spoke also about animals and birds, reptiles, and fish. From all nations, people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. As an example, early in his reign, the Bible gives us the story of Solomon when faced with the two women who both wanted the same child. Do you recall the story? There were two women living, living together in the same house, probably a house of ill repute, and they both have infants. And one night, sadly, one of the infants dies. And the two women then engage in this huge dispute over whose baby lived and whose baby died in the night. And they take the one living baby to King Solomon. They want King Solomon to decide who should get the child. And we recall what King Solomon says, don't we? He said, cut the child in half and give half to each of the mothers. And one of the mothers instantly screams out, no, don't, don't harm the baby. The other woman can have him, just don't hurt him. And Solomon says, she's the mother. The one that refused to harm the baby is the mother of the child, and he grants the baby. It's Solomon's choice. It's Solomon, Solomon's wisdom that's so famous. And his story is told for us in the, in the first book of Kings. But what I think is so interesting about Solomon's story is that we don't just have his biography written for us in the book of Kings. We have his own writings. Solomon is credited with writing all three of what we call the wisdom books of the Bible, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. We get to read what he wrote. Now, there's room for scholarly debate about whether or not he wrote every word with his own hand or if some of his scribes and followers helped finish those works, but he's credited with some of the most loved words in the Bible. Many of the Psalms that we love are also credited to King Solomon. And his words resonate to us still today as words of wisdom. His Proverbs in particular resonate with us as some of the most practical advice that the Bible has to offer. You'll know some of these. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established, the Proverbs tell us. Better is a little with righteousness than a large income with injustice. A friend loves at all times. Your soul is nourished when you are kind, but it is destroyed when you are cruel. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he grows old, he will not fall from it. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Better to live on the corner of the roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. It's an important one to remember as we hear King Solomon's story. His poetry in Ecclesiastes is some of the most beautiful poetry that the Bible has to offer. We hear it frequently and don't always realize where it came from. These are Solomon's words when we hear, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, 
a time for war, and a time for peace. His prayers for wisdom that are recorded for us in the Psalms are prayers for a leader that resonate with us still today. Hear him pray to God for wisdom. He says, give your love of justice to the king, O God, and righteousness to the king's son. Help him judge your people in the right way. Let the poor always be treated fairly. May the mountains yield prosperity for all and may the hills be fruitful. Help him to defend the poor, to rescue the children of the needy, to crush their oppressors. The king will rescue the poor when they cry out to him. He will help the oppressed who have no one to defend them. He feels pity for the weak and the needy and he will rescue them. He will redeem them from oppression and violence for their lives are precious to him. For centuries, we have loved Solomon's words. But here's the thing, words are just words and wisdom is hard. We hear his words just as likely at weddings as at funerals and we hear them in song lyrics and movies and political speeches. But to live them out is tough. And Solomon himself struggled to live out his own words of wisdom. The end of his life was full of mistakes despite his beautiful words of wisdom. The story of his life in 1 Kings tells us this. Now honestly, I have to admit that 1 Kings is not the first book of the Bible that I reach for in my times of personal devotion. <laughs> I'm much more likely to read the beautiful poetry of Ecclesiastes, but here's the thing. Reading them side by side was important to me because it was a reminder that our words don't really mean much if our lives, our actions, aren't consistent with the things we say we believe. What intrigues me about the wisdom literature of Solomon is that it isn't about knowing the right thing, it's ultimately about doing the right thing. It's about living out our choices over the course of a lifetime. Adam talked the last couple weeks about orthodoxy, right belief, and about orthopraxy, right practice. And I just wanna follow that up with what Methodist scholars refer to as orthocardia, a right heart. I told Marvin earlier that I wasn't gonna let Adam win the summer vocab contest. John Wesley talks about his own experience of right heart when he says his heart was strangely warmed when he came to have real personal belief in God's grace and mercy for him. And he says that the great end of religion is to renew our hearts in the image of God. Solomon's story is a story about heart. Solomon's father, King David, with his very last words before he died and handed over his kingdom, warned his son about the importance of a right heart. In the second chapter of 1 Kings, we're told that David's time was coming to an end. So he commanded Solomon, his son, I'm following the path that the whole earth takes, meaning that he's about to die. And he tells Solomon, be strong and be a man. Guard what is owed to the Lord your God, walking in his ways and observing his laws, his commands, his judgments, and his testimonies, just as it is written in the instruction from Moses. In this way, you will succeed in whatever you do and wherever you go. So also the Lord will confirm the word he spoke to me. If your children will take care to walk before me faithfully with all their heart and all their being, then one of your own children will never fail to be on the throne of Israel. Walk faithfully with all your heart. You know how David knew to give Solomon this advice, don't you? 
It's the Shema that we've been learning about this summer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. These are the most important commands. Centuries later, Jesus would echo those words and agree with them. And do you know where we're told to keep those commands? Verse 6 in Deuteronomy, these commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts. How do we keep something in our hearts and not just in our minds? We see the answer over and over again in scripture. Wisdom is linked to action. Wisdom is supposed to be practical advice to help us live our lives more abundantly, to help us take the right action. It's knowing how to act, not just knowing for the sake of knowing. The phrase, know it by heart, means to be able to perform something without thinking. It's not just memorizing something, it's living it out, it's acting it out in real life. And when Solomon described why David wanted to build the temple, he said it was because he had it on his heart to do it. When he talked about how God would deal with his people justly, he said it was because God would know their hearts. And when he asked God to forgive the people, he said it was because the people would turn their hearts back towards God. Over and over again, it's a story about heart. And when God appears to Solomon for the second time in his life after building the temple, God promises that his eyes and his heart would always be there. It's a story about heart. Because head knowledge has its limits. Solomon, despite his famous wisdom, admitted in his old age that he didn't know everything. He never figured out why bad things happen to good people. He never figured out why the wicked sometimes really do prosper. He says that there is no way the human mind can fathom everything that God has done. Wisdom is indeed something to be sought after, but we have to recognize the limits of our own knowledge. Much of the book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon's lament that it doesn't all make sense, that he couldn't figure it out, that it was all vanity. You see, despite being born into wealth and power and privilege, Solomon struggled to find joy. He had, quite literally, everything a man could want, and yet he wasn't satisfied. He always wanted more. More land, more power, more gold, more horses, more troops, more cities, more wives, more gods even in the end. And that's what undid him. In order to gain power, he took wives from foreign lands, 700 by the time of his death, First Kings tells us, plus 300 concubines. And not surprisingly, he became distracted. I don't think it was just about the women. It was about the alliances, the land, the money, the power, the foreign prestige, Solomon always wanted more. First Kings tells us that when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not true to the Lord his God, as had been the heart of his father David. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord his God who had appeared to him twice. And then do you know what happens? Solomon dies before he can make it right. And his turning away becomes the end of the united monarchy of Israel. In the end, his kingdom failed because his heart wasn't true to the Lord his God. Now I have to admit that I'm speculating here. 
And I encourage you to read 1 Kings and to come to your own conclusion. But I don't think it was all about the women. I think Solomon's problem was that he just couldn't be satisfied. He had the right words, but in the end, he didn't have the right heart. He didn't have a heart that was full of the love of God, orthopraxis. Our hearts, orthocardia, our actions and our hearts matter as much as the words that we say. Like any wise teacher, Solomon offers a chance to learn from his mistakes. This is the advice he leaves us. It's one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. It's out of Ecclesiastes. It's written probably very late in Solomon's life. Go, he says, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a happy heart. Let your garments always be white and let oil not be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife, singular, take note, that you love. Whatever work you are capable of doing, do it with all of your might. He says it even more clearly at the conclusion of those famous beautiful words in Ecclesiastes, the time for everything passages. We very rarely hear how those end. This is how it actually ends. He says, I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and to do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all of his toil. This is the gift from God. The king who had everything but couldn't be satisfied sums it up so perfect, like the classic cliche of the parent who says, do as I say, not as I do. Solomon cries out to us through the ages to love God with a happy heart. But what is the key to a happy heart if it's not wealth and power and stuff? I heard a great sermon recently, all the better because it was a glorified children's sermon. I was visiting my son at camp. Some of you know our children have gone to sleepaway camp up in Michigan for many years. This is my last child's last summer at camp. And I went up to spend some time with him. And on Sunday mornings, they all go to church. It's not optional. And the pastor there, who is a brilliant, well-educated man, essentially spends his entire year preaching to a captive audience of children between the ages of 8 and 17, because he does the same thing for boarding school during the year. He's a brilliant pastor. And the church is a gorgeous old church. It was built as a memorial to World War II veterans, and it has this glorious stained glass window that's right behind him when he speaks. And he said to the kids, he said, look at the window and look for the color red. And so the kids and all the parents that were gathered that, there today, that day looked at the window, and there was all of this red. It was beautiful, and you saw this beautiful image in stained glass. And he said, now do the same thing. Close your eyes for a minute and open them, and look at the window again, but look for the color blue. And we looked at the window and looked for the color blue, and there was all of this blue, and it was beautiful, but the image was a little bit different when you looked for blue instead of for red. And then he did the same thing with the color green and the color yellow. And each time the image was beautiful, but it was a little bit different. And then he said to the kids, he said, call out your answers. Tell me what it is you hate about summer camp. And he got the sort of answers you would expect. It was too cold at night and too hot during the day, the glories of a Michigan summer. They said that they missed their parents, that they missed their friends, they missed their video games, they hated the food, all the things you would expect. But then Pastor Sam said, tell me all the things you love about summer camp. And he got remarkably similar answers in a different format. They loved it that it cooled off at night and there were fireflies. And they loved the warm, sunny days on the lake and they loved being away from their parents. And they loved making new friends. And they loved the barbecues that they had at night. All the things they said they hated when he asked them to look at what they hated were really the same things 
they loved when he asked them to look at the things that they loved. And his point to the kids, I think, is a valid point to all of us looking at Solomon's life. We have some control over the way we view our own lives. We have a choice about what to focus on. And wisdom calls us to focus on the good, to have eyes of gratitude. You see, I don't think a happy heart is something we're born with. And I don't think it's the necessary byproduct of wealth or power or a long life even. I think a happy heart is a choice that we make. Look for the good like kids looking for the color red in the stained glass. A good meal, a good friend, good work to do. There's a spiritual practice called the exam, and it's an Ignatian practice, where we're invited at the end of each day to look back on our day and to see the places where we found God in it, to see the places we interacted with the world, where we did good today, where we might do better tomorrow. But the key requirement, the key instruction is to review your day with gratitude. And I think this is what Solomon is trying to tell us at the end of his life. Look over your day with gratitude. Look over the years of your life with gratitude. This doesn't mean to be dishonest about the circumstances of your life with yourself or your friends or your God. If we live as long as Solomon, there will be bad things that happen to us. And when they do, there is no greater blessing than the ability to be honest with our friends and the people that love us and let them come alongside and support us. But I think what we're being told in the practice is even in the midst of those hard times, to find the things for which we are grateful. I know people in this congregation that in the midst of great turmoil and pain are able to still focus on the things that are beautiful and glorious in their lives. And when they do that, they're a gift to everyone. Enjoy your life now, Solomon says, because it does not go on forever. Solomon's words and his life teach us that we will ultimately run out of time, and the time we have is a gift. Whatever your hand finds to do, Solomon tells us, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead, where we are all surely going, there is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. Seize this day. Live it fully. Find your love, find your passion, find your people, find your good work to do. Eat your bread with a happy heart, and then be grateful for it. Just because we know something in our minds doesn't mean it will be easy to live it out in our lives. We need to know it with our hearts. In the end, I don't think growing old guarantees that we will grow wise. I think we can know the right words, but we still have to make the right choices over and over and over again. We have to choose gratitude. We have to choose joy justice, kindness, mercy, grace. We have to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, not just our minds. We have to be wise enough to do what we say we believe in. We have to know it by heart. Amen.